0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30. And, of course, you're listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. First up, of course, we have to say a very good morning to Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants. Morning, Stephen.
1: Good morning, Pam, and good morning to the listeners. I hope they're all lying cosily in bed listening to us. (laughs) Because
0: it's dark and cold out there. Yeah, yeah, it's
1: still (laughs) night time. I mean, what are we doing? (laughs) I don't know. We're (laughs) mad. (laughs) Yeah, so, uh, but definitely it's, uh, it's cooling down. We haven't had a frost at Macedon yet, so I'm still waiting for our first autumnal frost and autumn's nearly over. Yeah. So it's a really weird season, but there's swings and roundabouts with all things. So there's certain plants in the garden at home that need to be knocked down. Uh, I may have to take action if something doesn't happen shortly. Uh, uh, but there are other plants that are flourishing because they haven't been hit by the frost yet. So I'm sitting back and enjoying those, really.
0: Fair enough. And you've mm. still got a bit of autumnal colour in the yeah, garden.
1: Yeah, there's, there's still a bit of autumnal colour. My, my um, sorb or checkerberry, the Sorbus domestica, which is now called Cormus domestica, apparently, um, that I planted in my orchard just because it is sort of vaguely a, a, an edible tree, not that I've ever done anything with the sorbs, um, is the most fabulous orange at the moment. It is just beautiful. So, Great. Uh, and yeah, there's still a few maples that are in colour and you know, other oddments that are, are still in colour. So I, I reckon we've still got another couple of weeks of autumn colour. I have to say, the oaks and a lot of of the big trees around Mount Macedon didn't colour well this year uh, and didn't last very long because of the dry season we've had, Mm. so the autumn has been very patchy up there this year, it hasn't been as spectacular as some years, Mm. but yeah, it's still very pretty and and very enjoyable, Mm. do like autumn.
0: My Japanese maples never coloured up this year. Mm. The the leaves just went brown.
1: Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. A lot of of trees did that. A lot of my weeping Japanese maples did that at work, which is very frustrating because you wait all season for them to turn a brilliant colour in the autumn so that people get this immediate impulse to buy one um <laughs> and they mainly went brown and dropped off so yep. i didn't sell terribly many weeping maples this autumn but anyhow
0: never I mind know. there's always next year yeah of course there is <laughs>
1: you just got to look at these things from the bright side I'm
0: absolutely
2: sure. we also have to say a very good morning to penny woodward hi penny good morning pam lovely to be here again and we I haven't had a frost, but then I never get frosts. No, you're not no, in the right area a, for frosts, yeah, are yeah. you? But it did feel cold enough on a couple mm. of mornings so that okay. I was thinking, oh, other people will be having frosts. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah I really haven't had them yet. yet so. Not yet. And I have a Japanese maple that one branch, one big branch of the tree turned a beautiful red oh, and the rest of it turned brown <laughs> <laughs> Oh, <laughs> no, that's even, dear. That's even weirder. Yeah, it is
1: weird, isn't it? You wonder how that can happen, but yeah. it does. Mm.
3: Yeah. Oh, well...
0: Never mind. Okay, um, I'm going to get started straight into some community announcements. Um, first up, uh, today uh, is the day where uh, people are invited to celebrate World Bee Day. Now, uh, uh, it's all taking place um, with the team from Australian Pollinator Alliance, um, Inc., at Alf- Alfington Farmers Market. Um, now, that's, as I said, happening today. And uh, they'll be there down at Alphington from nine o'clock this morning through until one o'clock. Now, Alphington Farmers Market is at two Wingrove Street in Alphington, and uh, they're going to uh, be—you're going to be able to learn how to make a native bee hotel. Um, The children can have their faces painted with bees, butterflies, and bats. You can find out about beekeeping um, incursions for schools discover how to have your own backyard beehive, win a raffle or some spot prizes, and meet local beekeepers. So, as I say, that's all happening today from 9 o'clock running through until 1 o'clock this afternoon. So uh, the kids would have a great time uh, learning all about bees and keeping beehives and all the rest of it and having bees and butterflies Mm. and bats painted on their faces.
1: What more could you want? Exactly.
0: (laughs) Okay, also uh, coming up, um, encouraging women in horticulture as go- are going to be running a sustainable floristry event. Now, um, this is a chance to enjoy a day in the hills, getting a glimpse behind the scenes of Cut Flower Growers, Flora Pacific. And uh, Rita, who's owner of Rita Feldman Flowers and founder of the Sustainable Floristry Network, will uh, teach you how to make a lovely arrangement to take home. Uh, you do need to book. Uh, spaces are limited. This is happening uh, next Thursday, 23rd of May. The location is flora Pacific Nursery, which is 200 Ure Road, Gembrook, U-R-E Road, however that's pronounced, Ure, perhaps. Ure Road, Gembrook, 200 is the number there. Time is 1 p.m. through to 4 p.m. Uh, it includes afternoon tea. Now, if you're a member of Encouraging Women in Horticulture, $35. Non-members, $40. Student members of the uh, group, $25. Students non-members, $30. And uh, you can uh, jump online and uh, punch in Encouraging Women in Horticulture and it should all come up for you there and uh, you could book there as well. Okay. Now... uh An interesting one that's just crossed my path this week is that uh, next Sunday, May 26th, um, there's going to be a special Dirt Day. Uh, And this is going to uh, feature Dr. Mary Cole, who's an internationally recognised leading soil scientist. Now, um, Mary is going to be giving um, two talks, and There'll also be talks by Marlene Hoff from 100 Mile Foodie. Uh, there'll be hands-on composting workshops. There'll be planting and kids' activities. There'll be site tours. Um, there'll be organic soil treatment demonstrations and samples. There'll be a community picnic for lunch, so bring BYO food, or you can share some of the seasonal fare. And uh, the whole thing is taking place down at... Um, somewhere called Downs Estate Community Project. Now, uh, Downs Estate is an old farm property. It's on Old Wells Road in Seaford. It's now owned by Frankston Council, but part of the site has been licensed to the local community group um, to develop as a community site for environmental and community activities. So this is their initial activity that they've organised, as I say, a dirt day next Sunday Gates will open at 10am, running through until 4pm, um, so plenty of talks, um, workshops, lots of hands-on activities and um, cost for that is $5 entry, children are free. So um, you, uh, the only address I have, it will be well signposted, it is Old Wells Road, Seaford and I'm told that it's opposite the Motorbike Club, so anyone who lives down in Seaford is probably familiar with where the motorbike cover is. They'll have the, heard it. Yeah, they will have heard it, for <laughs> yeah. sure. So, uh, yes, yeah, a very interesting day that they've organised for that one. Uh, now, coming up, of course, on the 26th is um, Botanic Gardens Day, not only in Australia but also in New Zealand, and a lot of botanic gardens are going to be having special um, uh, activities yep. taking place within their, commu- their botanic gardens. Now, one that I do know of, of course, is our good friends up at Melton Botanic Gardens. And uh, for their um, Botanic Gardens Day, uh, they'll be having guided tours um, on the Bacchus Marsh Lions Club train. The, the plant nursery sales will be on. There'll be a discovery table, refreshments, bee information and sales uh, the Greater Western Community Band will be playing and there'll be children's art and plant activities with that one. So, as I say... You'll be able to
1: go there and see their new red tree.
0: Yes, <laughs> which I've seen a photo <laughs> of. Yeah, yes,
1: they're, they're, uh, an old had died. So, they took the uh, ends of the branches off and... The bark's all been strooped, uh, and I think in the last day or so, it, the whole tree was painted, painted. bright red, Good and it. it looks fantastic. I mean, yeah. it's just such a lovely way of utilising something like that. Yes. Although it's a terrible waste of firewood, I reckon, but anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. so they've got a bright red gum tree down there. So uh, it's in their, um, it, they, they've called it alo red because it's in their South African section okay. of uh, Melton Gardens. And if they've
2: used non-toxic paint, though, you see it will become a home to all the insects. and. Yeah. Yeah, well, and then possibly, and develop hollows even, yeah, or you know, may, yeah, possibly. Although I don't know whether they really
1: thought important. about non-toxic. Oh, well. But anyhow, it looks fantastic. Yeah, it uh, does. Um, yeah, so, and I think it's fun to see things being sort yes. of recycled in unexpected ways.
0: Absolutely, mm. yes. So the address for Melton Botanic Gardens is 21 William Street in Melton there. Now, the open day, as I said, is happening next Sunday, 10 a.m., running through until 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Now, as well as that, on Friday the 31st of May... Um, For Reconciliation Week, uh, the Friends of Melton Botanic Gardens are running a guided walking tour. Uh, So this will be uh, starting at 10am, running through until noon, uh, with morning tea included. Um, You meet at the Depot and Plant Nursery at 21 Williams Street in Melton there. Uh, You do need to book, and uh, to book you need to contact John Bentley. His number is 9743. Three eight one nine. If it's unattended, please leave a message, or you can email friends at fmbg.org.au. So the phone number 9743 3819 or friends at fmbg.org.au. Uh, now, uh, just one more that I should mention: Friends of Burnley Gardens. Um, uh, have got an illustrated talk coming up with Jeff Crowhurst. Uh, he's going to be talking about the flora of Xiexun, uh province there in uh, China. Uh, and it, it's all about uh, in the footsteps of the great plant hunter, Ernest Wilson. So this is Wednesday the 29th of May, 7 for a 7.30 start. And... Uh, Of course, it's taking place down at Burnley Campus, 500 Yarra Boulevard in Richmond there, 7 o'clock for nibbles, 7.30 for the talk in main building, room 11. Cost is $10 for members of the Friends group, $20 for non-members. Bookings aren't required. Um, If you have any queries, you can email friends.burnley at gmail.com and parking is available in the boulevard. Okay, well let's uh let's open up our talk back lines for our listeners. If you'd like to ask a gun in question this morning, we'd love to hear from you. That number is nine four one nine zero one double five. That's nine four one nine zero one double five. Or we do have Liz on the outside line nine four one nine eight three double seven if you'd like to have a chance to have a chat to Liz. Okay, Stephen, what's happening up in your neck of the woods? Uh,
1: what's happening? Uh, there's Well, we've got no events coming up just at this very moment, but we will have some interesting things come out in due course. Actually, just as a little um, aside, uh, next meeting of the Mount Macedon District Horticultural Society, which is always the first Tuesday of the month, Um uh, and I can't remember what the date is of the first Tuesday of the next month, but anyhow, it's the first Tuesday. Um, We're having somebody who's going to come along and talk to us about furniture making. And it's a lady who makes her own furniture out of wood off her own property. Um, So I think it's going to be quite fascinating I'm really looking forward to it So if people want to come along to that The meeting always starts at 8 o'clock Visitors are always welcome Um, You might decide you need to be a member as well while you're there So that's fine You can talk to the Secretary or the Treasurer Um, And I think it should be a really interesting meeting So we often throw in something that's a little bit sort of left of centre Or right of centre or whatever Um, And uh, yes, I'm looking forward to this one It should be something quite different Fascinating. I
2: think we often don't think about the sort of the next step from the garden and other ways that our gardens can be used. So that, you know, my garden, and I'm sure with yours, supplies most of my firewood. Yeah. um, And I grow things specifically to be able to supply on a fairly small block of land, but it also supplies frames for things to climb up and my
1: bamboo's fantastic for that
2: Uh, indeed so Mm. uh, you know I think a lot of us grow those things so that Mm. so that we're able to do it and I I just think making furniture from the garden is just another step of of, you know I just wish I was better with a saw and a hammer and nails (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: I don't think I'll go quite that far but you know it's fascinating to see somebody who's doing it Exactly, yeah. So, yeah. Um,
2: and Pam would this be that a good time? That totally a ties in. Yes, it is. Oh, here we go. Something. How yeah, clever of mention. me was that? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We That's didn't a have pleasure. This plan. Um, I have a very dear friend of many decades who um, died at the end of 2017. She was an amazing basket maker. Uh, lived in Ballarat. Her name is Liz Suter. Um and her daughter Kate and I and some other friends of hers have been working to collect back some of her baskets from. Friends and family, um, people have been really generous and lending them back to us. And we actually have a an exhibition happening um, starting on the 30th of May, which I'll give you the details of at the end. But Liz made her baskets, um, a lot of them, from stuff that she grew in her garden. Hmm. So, so it's, it's recycling. So things, Red Hot Pokers in particular yes, were, yeah. were one that she used. She also made all her own paper and, and made the most beautiful cards and all this sort of thing. But I've spent the last three months pulling together a, a catalogue, which has actually turned into a book. Um, I don't know, like <laughs> well, how do these I things happen? Job, <laughs> yes, into these things. But it's been a, a really important process, I think, for all of us because it's been a way of saying goodbye to Liz. But sure. I've had the privilege of going through her workbooks and seeing how she used, manipulated these plants and things like hazelwood and rowan and walnut and all things that she grew in her garden mm. that she would use in her baskets and she travelled a lot overseas and um, she would get ideas from you know, African basket makers mm. and, and there was one in particular that she saw where all the baskets were on legs. And that was to so that they could store the produce safely. All right. Um, and so Liz made all these beautiful baskets using fence droppers as the legs. Good and, heavens! Um, yeah, you know, it was they, they are they are just beautiful. So we we're going to have uh, probably we haven't don't know exactly which ones will actually be in the exhibition, but in the catalogue we've got more than sixty of her baskets. Gosh. Um, and sort of um, information about how she made them, you know, from her, from her workbooks. And um, so if you're interested in basket making and, and in some of the processes and, and you know of Liz, people in the basket making world do know her because she was doing it for so long. The exhibition, um, as I said, starts on Thursday the 30th of May um, the launch of the exhibition is on the 31st at 6 o'clock, if anyone wants to come to that. Um, and it goes for three weeks, but it's in, it's in the Ballarat Art Gallery, but it's in the Backspace Gallery. So, oh, okay. so that is only open on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Right. Um, and from 12 until 4. Okay. So it's on for three weeks from the 30th. But only on those days on the Thursday Friday Saturday Sunday so if you want to find out more you can jump onto the um, Ballarat Art gallery website and you go to the go to the backspace gallery and you'll see more information about it on there but fantastic beautiful baskets everything from one that I was that sh- that I showed you before which is um, her homage to Hunza one which is stands at about two and a half meters two. Goodness me, it's huge. It is yes, it, it is, is really, really huge. And it was it was based on um, the Hunza people and the sort of way they made baskets. But I remember being on the wattle on the bay, on Port Phillip Bay with Liz when we saw the South Channel um light oh, yes. on, in the bay and she modelled the shape of the basket on that on that South Channel light. How clever. So you know it's um, All the baskets have stories, and we've tried to tell quite a few of those stories as well. And I will have the catalogue for sale on Mm -hmm. my website when we're getting the copies next week. Excellent. Yeah, so anyone who's interested, they'll be $20. Okay. Fantastic.
0: That's brilliant. All right. Um, Stephen, let's start with one of your plants.
1: Uh, Well, before I do, remind people that, of course, if they want to actually visually see these plants as well as have me describe them, they only have to look at the Facebook page for the 3CR Gardening Show. Exactly. Uh, I sent the images in to uh, Liz yesterday, so they should be up there for people to have a look at. Excellent. Um, You're
2: so (laughs) organised.
1: No, I'm not. I mean, I was doing two President's Letters, yesterday or the day before, that were basically um, needed immediately. Uh, I was also writing an article for the RHSV um, magazine that comes out, and I'd been given about three days uh, to to finish that in because I'd forgotten that the uh, deadline was coming up, and I got a little reminder from, uh, (laughs) from Jennifer Rickaby that... By the way, Stephen, you need that article in by such and such. I'm thinking, oh, no, that's only a few days away. And so, yeah, the last week I've been madly trying to catch up with all that sort of stuff. And, of course, going away overseas didn't help matters because I was well and truly behind. Yeah, it throws you out. It oh, really does. Oh, well, yes. Whatever. But, anyhow, yesterday I did, like, yesterday afternoon, decide what do I or was deciding what I would bring down to talk about this morning. My topic is sort of interesting winter foliages. You know, okay. or Things that are going to look interesting in the winter for their foliage. And I'll start with the smallest uh, representative. Um, Some people have an issue about growing holly, and I can understand that because some of the holly species, particularly aquifolium, the classical English holly, has become quite weedy in in some areas. Mm -hmm. So you've got to consider that, uh, although I might add... I object to the fact that we're told we shouldn't grow it, and yet nobody's doing anything about clearing it out of our forests. But anyhow, that's another story. Um, this particular one shouldn't cause anybody any grief. It's a dwarf form of the, the um, Chinese holly, uh, Ilex cornuta, and it goes under the name of rotunda. And it grows into the neatest, almost topiary ball of Dense, dark green foliage. And the Chinese holly has sort of three spines at the end of the leaf, and the, and the end spine curls in. So you get this really triangular sort of end to the so leaf.
2: It's a really unique looking thing. Yeah, leaf, it, 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 it? I I is. So texturally, yeah, texturally
1: yeah. this plant is remarkable. I mean, when you've got a, a well-grown plant of it, it's a really dark green blob, but it's not a box ball or something. Yes, it's, yes. You know, it's got far more interesting textural qualities about it. It is a female form, and I have seen berries on it, um, I'm not sure that it'll fruit on its own. Uh, I haven't had, well, living in Macedon, there's always going to be a, a, a holly not too far away mm. that's growing wild, so I can never be confident whether something is self-pollinating or not when when uh, in the area where I am. Uh, so I can't promise that if you're in the midst of Melbourne and you decide to plant this that you will get red berries, but it is a female form, so it has the potential of having red berries, um, and, you know, give hollies their due. They're hardy, uh, they look handsome all year round uh, and as a tub specimen or a nice anchoring plant for a border or something where you've got lots of soft fluffy stuff this could be much better than a box ball to plant mm. uh, it's a steady doer but it'll take probably four or five years to get to a decent sized ball okay uh, uh, the little plant i bought along this morning's in a 15 centimeter pot and it's you know it's probably 18 months old and it's still only comparatively small, although come next spring when it sends its next break of growth on, it will be, you know, getting up to almost basketball size. Yep. Uh, uh, and it really is a very interesting plant. So Ilex Cornuta rotunda, uh, the dwarf Chinese holly. Mm. and I'm really fond of it. And it's not one of those plants that I've seen grown much, so it's something a little bit obscure. Um, And it would certainly make a really good effect. Uh, I remember Stuart Rattle had a pair of them in pots over at Musk Farm. I don't know whether they're still there or not, but they were in these really quite beautiful pots and just this big round... Crisp-looking ball on the top, and they looked fabulous. Mm,
2: look good. Yeah. It? Oh,
1: yeah. It's a great little plant. So it'll cope with shade. It'll cope with sun. It's reasonably heat tolerant. Um, doesn't need lots of water. Although in a pot, obviously anything you grow in a pot's reliant on you. So you do have to do some yeah. things with it. But in the ground, I've got one in the garden in, at home, and I don't remember intentionally going out of my way to water it this summer. Mm. Uh, it may have got a splash of water when I was doing other things around it, mm. but I certainly didn't water it per se. Mm. And it's sailed through, hasn't blinked. Having said that, it is in a semi-shaded aspect, so maybe if it had been out in the 45 degrees with a howling northwesterly, it might have burnt, I don't know. Yep. But anyhow, hardy little plant. so that's the dwarf Japanese, uh, dwarf Chinese holly. So there we I, go.
0: I hate to tell you my, my childhood memories of um, holly was that my mother devised this scheme every Christmas that I was given a pot of red paint and I had to sit there and paint all the berries on the holly red <laughs> For Christmas decorations inside the house.
1: Uh, yeah. Well, that is one of the downsides of holly in the <laughs> Southern Hemisphere because uh, at Christmas time it normally has green berries. That's so, right. So you don't have the sort of red and green combination that you want for Christmas. <laughs> Although having said that, occasionally at Mount Macedon you will find a holly with some red berries on it at Christmas time. I always go for a bit of a hunt round the mountain. Okay. And I nearly always find a tree somewhere mm. that's got a few red berries on it so right. I can just pick a few sprigs for the top of the cri- um, Christmas pudding or whatever. Oh, so. if only
0: we'd had one. <laughs> it would yeah. have saved me a lot lot of grief
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh but it probably gave you an artistic bent
0: oh you'd never know <laughs> okay we'll go to our first caller and we have uh, jill in east brighton good morning jill
4: good morning pam good morning everybody look i first of all wanted to say how much we missed you over over the christmas break oh uh, uh, thank you it's a fantastic you know wonderful to have you back um and look yes i um I have an orange and purple bed that was inspired by by you, Stephen, years ago. Mm. Uh, and um, just for a bit of winter in the bear patch, I planted a whole lot of violas, orange and purple ones. They, they looked fabulous. And then one by one, they've all keeled over. Yeah. And I can't work out why. Um, I thought they maybe they have some kind of... Wilt. Uh, one collapsed. And I thought, oh, well, you know, the, the, this was shortly after uh, planting. Um, maybe their root system wasn't enough to, you know, support the, the rest of it. Mm. So I watered it madly, which didn't help at all. And um, yes, they, they're planted close ish to one another and they're just going one by one. Mm. Uh, I've stopped watering them completely. Yeah. And then, and uh, you know, some of them are still going, but. Is there anything I can do to save the ones that are still left? I
1: don't think so. I'm wondering whether you've got cockchafers eating the ah, roots out is a possibility yeah. give them a little tug and see whether they're actually anchored, they may not have much root system under them, because uh, it, it could be something like cockchafers or one of those nasty yeah, little grubs Little, little
4: grubs. Yeah, yeah eating yeah.
1: the roots okay. off, and of course if you want to actually deal with those little beggars, I don't know of anything organic you can do except stand on them when you dig them out.
4: No, up. no you encourage the magpies, yes. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. yes,
1: but that could um, be a possibility um, it's really yeah. hard to diagnose these things over the I phone, I know, of course. I'm, on,
4: I'm on the sand belt, so it's very really sandy soil, so mm. you Know, I would have thought perhaps that I needed to water them, but um yeah I, but
2: look it's a it's a perfect time of year for planting them, so you know yeah, you, yeah you've I've done right. exactly the right thing, you know, environmentally, they should flower right through mm. winter and they and, then, should. Yes. Yeah. and yes. then start collapsing you know as the summer mm. warms up as so. The, yes,
4: so so do you think that it would be you know like?
2: Bit too dangerous to replace the ones that have
4: died in the same spot because it's the spot where I've got a bear, you know, I've got, I've got a spot. Yeah, so you want to
1: fill that spot again, yes. which, which yeah. is, yeah. It, is I would, reasonable. I
2: would never put the same thing No, out. I always no, hesitate to no. do that. No. Um, I thought you might, I thought you'd say that. Yeah,
1: yeah. so I, um, I would yeah. perhaps look for something else that uh, that you could perhaps try, but when you do pull the violas out, yes. see if anything I'll... comes up with their roots that might give away what's been going on. Mm.
4: Yes, yes, I will, I will, mm. yes. Yes, it's really very, really, and I've grown them Successfully many times in the past, um, and uh,
2: yeah. So I, I guess the the only thing I just this was just a sudden thought that mm. if you um, if you want to put them back in there would be to um, put them in plastic pots and actually sink the plastic okay. pots mm-hmm. into the soil, okay. so that you're leaving yeah. them. Um, yeah, yeah, they're not coming into contact mm. with the with the rest of the soil if it's a viral problem and that might even help with the cocktails. Well it could too because if they if, the, if they
1: can't... Yeah, the little buggers
2: might find yeah. their way in.
4: Yeah, that's right.
1: Yeah, so yeah. that's a possibility oh, that's a, as well.
2: Oh, that's a very creative
4: solution. Yes, thank you. Because they are cute yeah. those they're just I love them oh, They virals. are. Yeah. But, yes. They're so cheerful and it's right on the edge of the bri- you know driveway and they so those little faces looking up at you, they're just sort of a, l- a lovely thing through the winter months and yeah. Mm. Anyway, look, thanks very much for all of that and Please continue the. <laughs> okay. Good
2: on you. Thanks. Bye.
4: Okay. Bye, See you. Bye. Uh, now we've had a caller who
0: wants suggestions for a low-cost way to fill their raised veggie um, beds.
1: Hmm. Uh, but
3: far... they they
0: want the right mix, so they want they want to know, um, you know, compost, whatever.
1: Yeah, you can't get everything in life. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean. I certainly make use of roadside manure sellers, uh, which is not hideously expensive. You can normally buy bags of horse poo and things like that for a couple of bucks on the side of the road. So uh, that would be a good start uh, yep. and would help. Um, some of the councils have available compost and stuff too from green waste that they've composted down. You might like to look in and see what your local council's doing. Um, uh, and it sounds... Uh, <laughs> The other thing I used to do a lot of, I don't do so much now because my trees are doing it on their own, but I used to go out and rake up leaves. Uh, At other people's places. At other people's places. I used to rake up the lawns of about three of the grand mansions on Mount Macedon Mm -hmm. and bring all the leaves home. I used to have all these old chaff bags and I'd bring home van load after van load of leaves. Uh, Now my garden's almost doing it on its own now because I've got quite a few big deciduous trees so they're they're dropping lots of leaves which is really good. Uh, But I used to go out and collect them and you could get them out of the side of the roads as well. I mean if you went down Honor Avenue in Macedon you could get all of the pin oak leaves and you know all that sort of. Things, so that's a, another possibility and thinking a little bit laterally I mean if you've got neighbours who are cutting lawns and things and don't want their grass cuttings and stuff get them to dump them in your, in your beds
2: yeah look I, I the other thing that I do with my beds and I'm actually raising them at the moment and rather than bringing soil in from outside I'm mm. making my own soil mm. so all my I'm turning them into compost heaps Yeah. so that they become my compost heap and I can start you can make little pockets in yeah. them and start planting some veggies in them Particularly, yeah, whilst big you're filling them, while, yeah. While, yeah. They're, while they're actually breaking yeah. down, and, and that's a good idea because um, then
1: you're not um, using a dedicated compost bin that you then have to move all of the final right. product back that's into right. there, so, so you're, you're cutting yeah. out a step. And I think making them into a compost heap is a fantastic idea.
2: So it could be a bit of a compromise where you get one bed that you bring in some soil um, and get things, the finer things growing in that, like carrots and parsnips. But, you know, the other ones you use as your compost bins Mm. and you fill them up. Mm. The only thing I I, I would add, and and I'm a big user of roadside manure, but I only buy it from um, places that I know because of this broadleaf herbicide. That's being used, particularly on horse properties. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, And I've written about it for Organic Gardener. It's been around now for a few years, but there are some people who have been totally devastated by um, the fact that this herbicide, this broadleaf herbicide, has a half-life of more than three years. So it doesn't break down. Mm. Um, And what it goes through the horse. Actually, the horse feeding on Mm. the grass that is left, that still has this broadleaf herbicide on it, because it doesn't kill the grasses, goes into the manure. The manure comes out the other end, and it's got this broadleaf herbicide in it. So when you try to start growing things Um, in it, they either don't grow at all or they grow deformed. And you're actually finding it sometimes in potting mixes that you buy. Um, so it's quite a good idea if you don't – it's, it's really hard. I mean, I know people who put in wicking beds and planted crops and nothing grew mm. or they grew deformed. And if you're growing zucchinis, all the leaves become cupped. Um, mm. it, it's really awful. Mm. And Dow yeah, Ebert me. says on its website that, you know, don't worry about it. You know, if your plants grow, your, everything will be fine. There's no way I'd be eating those. And the only way you can deal with it is to get it all out of wherever you've got it. Turn it over for two years, and then eventually the bacteria will break down these chemicals Ooh, in, goodness the, me. in the goodness. Um, mm. from this herbicide. Yeah. So um, you do need to be really careful about where mm. you get it from. You need to go and ask them if they've been using these. And there's a whole range of different names that are used um, that have this herbicide in it, but it's particularly bad on horse properties because ah. they worry about some of the broadleaf things for the horses for mm. feeding on them. Right. Um, so, and it's go to organicgardener.com.au and put in um, herbicides and it'll come, you'll come up with the article which will tell you what they're but their picloric is the sort of basis of them, um, okay. herbicides. Yeah, well, There's, certainly a, yeah. there's a whole range and they've yeah. been around for a while and yeah. every now and then you just, I run into someone who's completely devastated by it at a guy at at Mifka's who um, used potting mix that he'd got from supposedly a reputable source um, uh, to grow all these tomatoes in, and they all grew with these deformed tips. These, And and he showed them to me and said, nobody can tell me, and I just looked at them, and because I was familiar with this, I I knew exactly what it was, and and it was from his potting mix, and he'd just lost most of his crops that year. Because yeah, very expensive so, uh, yeah, thing to yeah, have yeah. happen. And mm. when it was when they were first introduced into the UK, um, there was such an outcry that they actually banned them but mm. then the farmers wanted them back again and so they let them happen and you know this yeah. You just need to be careful. Oh, and and it can also you can also get it in um hay and straw that is cut from these properties. Right. So that if you're using no, yeah. mulch yeah. you can also bring it in on mulch. Yeah. Which is why I only use lucerne hay and pea straw. Because that would because be dead if you use that, used that chemical. Yeah. Yes, used exactly. Yeah. The exactly. Yeah, so it's not a grass. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you just need to be really careful. With
1: this. It probably yep. means my duck manure place that I get duck manure from is probably pretty safe, I yeah, should think. Yeah,
2: indeed. Yes. I would think so, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and the sheep manure from underneath shearing sheds and that sort of thing, you're probably pretty shape, safe with because mm. they tend not to worry so much using the broadleaf herbicides on sheep and cattle property, but mm. they do with horses. Yep. So you may be unlucky and that mm. may be there as well. Yep. But Yeah.
0: Now that brings me to Penny. To we had a listener last week who um, was wanting to get hold of some um, some bulk sheep manure, yep. and um, I did contact you during the week because I knew you yep. you knew of a, a guy originally, but you said he's no longer he's supplying. no longer supplying it. Yep. No. So yep. what what I do what I can give out to that listener though, if you're after um, some organic. Um, manure of some sort, there's a group uh, called Grow Organic. Uh, Now, I know that they supply um, manures to all the community gardens around Melbourne's public housing estates. Uh, They supply poultry, cow, sheep and mushroom compost. Uh, you You can just type in Grow Organic online and it will come up or I can give you a phone number as well and the number is 5964... Four eight four six five nine six four four eight four six, and they will deliver. So, uh, and you, as I say, you can get them, get it in bulk. So, oh, fantastic. Um, yeah, so hopefully that solves that listener's uh, problem. Okay, uh, if you'd like to phone in and ask us a gardening question, we'd love to hear from you this morning. Do give us a call. The number nine four one nine zero one double five to speak to Stephen or Penny. Or if you'd like to have a good chat to Liz on the outside line, nine four one nine eight three
2: double seven. 8377. Uh, now, they just want to, me to explain what half-life... Half-life, okay. Is. So half-life is basically the time it takes to break down. Right. So, yeah, so the, the, that's about three years before you could safely use that soil again to grow things in. Yep.
0: Okay. Yes, a very timely warning.
1: Mm. It certainly
0: okay. is. Yep. Okay, let's go to another plant, All right, Stephen.
1: well, we might go for the silvery-leafed one. Um, to all intents and purposes, this plant doesn't look like most of the plants in its genus. It's a buddleia. Oh, really? Um, most is, of course, are grown for their floral effect, uh, but most of them don't have foliage that's, uh, it's all right, but it's not. It's not. Not anything exciting. special. No, yeah. it's not exciting. And a lot of people know buddleias as butterfly bushes oh, yes. because they have flowers on them that seem to be very butterfly-attractant. Well, it's the nectar. Yeah, the smell,
0: the perfume is beautiful. Yeah,
1: great plants. Yep. But not all buddleias are cut from the same mould. And this one is one from China called buddleia crispa, And crispa was actually imported into uh, England by Farrah and Purdom. Um, and went through Veach's Nursery when it was first um, discovered in China. It was discovered in a dry gully somewhere in in China. And it's a fairly quick-growing, semi-evergreen shrub. In really cold areas, it will become somewhat deciduous once the frosts really hit it. It grows up to around about the three-metre mark, Um, and it flowers in the spring. It flowers well out of sync with most of the other bubblies, and it gets open heads of... um, mauvey pink flowers on it uh, nicely perfumed but it's for its leaf you grow it as much as anything I mean it's leaves th- these leaves on this young plant it's only in a 15 centimeter pot and the leaves are actually still comparatively small right so it gets quite big leaves and they're a lovely furry soft gray mm. and so it's foliage is what it's all about for me I wouldn't care if this buddleia never flowered although it will uh, and like other buddleias, you prune after flowering so you would prune it In the spring, as soon as it finishes flowering, give it a good hard cut back, and then you'll get all this wonderful new growth that has extra big leaves on it that will look lovely in the garden right through the rest of the year. Okay. So, Buddleia crispa, you don't see again, you don't see it around terribly much for sale either, which is sort of sad um, because I think it's a great shrub. It's very drought tolerant. um, It's heat tolerant. it's not particularly fussy about soils. Most buddleias don't like poorly drained soils. So if you're going to have a problem with a buddley, you could drown one. That's about the best way to kill a buddley, I reckon. Um, but otherwise, they're pretty hard to kill. Uh, and as long as you give them a good pruning every so often, they can get rather leggy and twiggy and woody looking if they're not given a good pruning uh, on a fairly regular basis, yep. but at least every couple of years, if you hack it back really hard, uh, then it'll just refurbish the whole bush. Mm. So I think it's a great budlier, and uh, I still keep growing it, although I've basically stopped growing most of the buddleia david eyes and things because they... They sell seed everywhere. What's what I was going to say. Yeah. Some of them can be really weedy, not Yeah, they, they can. They, so the, the, the Buddleia davidii really is good. as pretty as they can be. Um, I got fed up, uh, particularly the dwarf one. There was a dwarf one being sold called Nanhoiensis, which is just okay. a form of Buddleia davidii. Mm. But it was self-seeding all over my nursery. I had it everywhere. Every plant I was selling seemed to have baby Buddleia seedlings mm. coming out. Oh. So in the end, I just discarded it altogether. Um, and so really, I've, I've fallen back on about three species of Buddleias that I grow now, um, um, that don't seem to have those issues. Crispr's one, Alternafolia is another, which is the fountain buddleia, which hangs down and has mauve flowers in the spring and makes this big weeping bush. I've never seen a seedling of that come up, and the other one is one of the Himalayan ones called Buddleia colvillii, which gets big, cerise pink bells with a white centre that almost look like penstemon flowers. Oh. Um, And it's a gorgeous thing. Big shrub. It needs a bit of moisture, though. It's not a particularly drought-tolerant buddleia. Um, But it's got the biggest flower in the genus, and it has clusters of these cherry red flowers with a white centre all over the plant in the the late spring, early summer. Mm. So they're the only three buddleias I bother growing now because a lot of the others are a a risk. Some of them grow too big for what you get back to. I mean, buddleia uh, globosa, the All buddly, which is very pretty, you end up with this shrub that's about five meters each way. And there's never enough flowers on it to repay for mm. the space it takes up. Uh, so that came out of my garden years ago because I just got fed up with this huge big bush there with just a few bobbles of golden yellow flowers on it. Um, and also Buddleia Selva Folia, the winter one, which has got the most exquisite perfume and it's a lovely Buddleia, but it grows vast. Mm. And it just takes up so much room for the three weeks of pleasure you get out of it mm. when it's in flower. Um, I'm quite happy one of the neighbours has got one. Okay. And I can walk <laughs> past it. Yes. So, <laughs> Yeah, so or Crispa. I think it's a great
0: one. Brilliant. Okay. Penny, let's let's um, talk about uh, Organic Gardener magazine.
2: Okay. So um, people might not have realised, but Organic Gardener magazine is now coming out eight times a year. So right. So we went from seven to eight. Okay. Which has suddenly put sort of extra <laughs> yes, pressure, on pressure on everyone. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> But it's, it's um, you know, we're gradually getting there. It's becoming a little more seamless. It's just, you know, as soon as we get one finished, we're moving into the next mm-hmm. one, which is, you know, people who do magazines that come out 12 times a year have a much yes. tougher job even. But, um, yeah, look, it's it's um, it's been an interesting process, but I think it's going to work really well, you know, once we sort of get our heads around it properly. Um, so, and th- I think this issue is a really lovely one. It's quite a, got quite a striking cover with a whole lot of different kales on the front. And Lentil Purbrick, who um, is from... Now I'm going to forget that. But anyway, she's written a really good article about, about kale and about how we need to look at it again and um, not be put off by the some of the flavours and if you grow them properly and harvest them at the right time and make sure they get cold... You know, the frosts in winter, you can have beautiful sweet kale instead of some of the horrible kales. Yes, yes. I have had experiences
1: with kale that you think, why would you do that? Yes, well, (laughs) they're
2: still packed with some really good stuff. Well, yes, yes. True. So um, she's got a really nice recipe in here as part of her article, which is basil and kale pesto. Okay. Which looks really nice. So Mm. I haven't actually tried it, but it looks really good. Um, I've written about goji berries Ah, and I had the chance to... Have a bit of a rant about um, superfoods and <laughs> oh, good. what a, what a load of rubbish they are. And, yeah. um, and I think goji berries are really interesting, but I wouldn't pay the sort of money that they're no, for it's them crazy. because although they do have some important nutrients in them, so do there
1: other are foods. Other exactly, that have
2: exactly the same nutrients yeah. exactly. for, for a fraction from, of the price. Yeah, yes, So they're relatively easy to grow, um, but and uh, and and they're, they're quite flavoursome, but Mm. you need to remember that they're a savoury berry, not a sweet berry. So Mm. some people have thought you know, this is like strawberries and blueberries and stuff like that, that they're sweet but they're not, they're savoury and you you need to treat them that way. So um, quite easy to grow. Um, Helen uh, McCarroll has written about, um, no, yeah, Helen's written about oranges, Justin's got a thing all about greenhouses because I think one of the things that we are looking at with climate change is Um, protecting our parts of our gardens. So that may be with greenhouses or shade houses or things that are adaptable and maybe growing some crops inside that in the past you could have got away with growing outside. So um, I think greenhouses may well become, or structures may well become a bigger part of of what we're doing. And um, there's a really nice article from um, Rebecca Sullivan and her partner, and I'm just going to have to find his name, uh, who, who is uh, Damien Coulthard, um, and he's a Wondu Mai. Uh, the book that they've produced is called Wandu Mai because um, Damien is a First Nations person, um, and it's full of really interesting ways of using um, Australian native plants, Ooh, um, which, is, which is really good. Uh, And one of the things I just wanted to say is that I I get to answer some of the letters in the magazine. And one of the things I love about that is quite often I don't know the answer, so I have to go looking for it. Right. And one of them was this guy sent a photo in of his corn cobs where um, instead of the corn cobs forming down the bottom on his plant, they formed where the male plant, male flowers were. Oh, that is odd. And I knew nothing about this, but I discovered, and I might just read this yes, now. Yes, sure. I'll read this rather than... Um, the, the, fortunately, there's an explanation for the strange cobs. These are known as tassel ears and are the common name for a corn tassel, the male flower that develops a limited number of kernels. A corn plant is monoecious, which means that both the female and male flowers are found on one plant. The tassel is the male flower and the female flower is the ear shoot, which is the part that develops the corn cob. The thing that I hadn't realised is that early on in development, both the male and female flowers start as a single flower that contains both the male and female reproductive parts. During normal flower development, the female flower component aborts in the tassel, leaving just a male flower, and the male flower component aborts in the ear shoot, leaving just a female flower but sometimes environmental triggers result in male flowers keeping their female parts, and this means tassel ears also grow kernels. So So it's an environmental thing. It's an environmental Hmm. thing. So, you know, these effects of the environment and our changing environment, one Mm. of them may well be that you start growing corn cobs on the top of your corn plants. Good Um, Good (laughs) heavens. I just think that it's... I think it's really interesting. I think it's sad that we're experiencing these things, but I suspect that these these tassel ears have been happening for a while. But the thing is they have no cover over them at all. So mostly they disappear to birds. Mm. Yes, so they They don't would. have the outer the outer covering. Yep. So if, you, if, you are, if they are developing and you want to be able to eat them, they're absolutely fine to eat. You would need to cover them in some way to stop the birds from eating them before they ripen. So goodness. There, there you all. go. So there's all sorts of, you know, it's, I love gardening. I learn new things all the time. That's and, the fun uh, of it. And I hope that, you know, People who get the magazine learn new things too. Oh, and Karen wrote, has written about um, vegan fertilisers. Oh, okay. So we figured it was time to let people know what they could use if they're vegan. And one of the things you can't use is mushroom compost because it has manures in it.
1: Hmm. Of okay. course it does because so, it's based on horse manure, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So
2: any any um, you would think if you were just thinking mushroom compost that yeah, that it it's, was about fine. yeah. it's about yeah. mushrooms yeah about mushrooms <laughs> but it actually isn't it, mm. it's actually got horse manure in it. So okay. So that's a really interesting article too. Okay. All well, right. So there you go. There you so go. everybody
1: should rush out and get their copy. I'm assuming it's in the newsagents as indeed. we speak. Yes. yes. Or so. you can
2: or you can get them online. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Yes.
0: Well, um, we have a caller saying they're having difficulty finding Organic Gardener magazine in newsagents. Um, can she subscribe? Is there a relationship with the ABC? And where can the caller buy it from? So,
2: okay, you can if you go online to organicgardener.com.au, you can either just buy an individual copy, or you can um, you can subscribe online. So. The Organic Gardener magazine, along with Gardening Australia magazine, are actually no longer actually published by the ABC. They're published by a company Mm -hmm. called Next Media, but they're licensed by the ABC. So we have to still stick to all the ethical things that the ABC has and says and does, and they're still the same people writing the articles and all that sort of thing, but there's just a different organisation over the top. And Mm -hmm. every, every magazine that we produce goes to the ABC for them to read all the articles and say, yes, this is okay, which means we, the normal stuff, you can't promote particular products. Um, If you do mention one product, you've got to mention equivalent products alongside it so that people have a choice. There's all sorts of things that we have to be careful about. Actually, organic
1: garden has not long become a non-ABC production, though, it, hasn't it? It was it, a
2: bit. It was a, a 18 months ago now. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: because the Gardening Australia magazine yeah. has been outside of the ABC even since a I was time. there. Yeah. you know, so it was yeah. it was run by a different company even yeah. when I was working for the ABC. Yeah. Mm. So it's been out of house for a long, long yeah. time. Yeah, but mm. it
2: is licensed by the yeah. ABC, and mm. the ABC gets. You know, a bit of funding from the licensing all the time. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah, without having to actually produce the magazine. Yeah. yeah, which
0: means as part of your production, you actually have to allow the time for it to we then do. go across to the ABC yep. for approval before yep. it can right. go out. Yep. another all level those. of
1: complication
2: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But look, it's a, you know, I think we're very lucky to still have the ABC imprimatur because, um, you know the the magazine is a really ethical mm. magazine i know but that mostly comes actually from steve our, our editor yes um he's really careful about what's said in the magazine and and um and that it is accurate and that um it's properly sourced and all those sorts of things um but he but it also has the stamp of approval from the abc which i think gives mm. it a credibility that that it wouldn't otherwise have absolutely yeah
0: yeah okay that number if you'd like to join us this morning, nine four one nine zero one double five, to speak to Stephen or Penny or if you'd like to chat with Liz on the outside line, nine four one nine eight three double seven. Okay, next plant, Stephen. All right.
1: Well, this plant is something that I don't know why it's not used more. It's a fantastic large shrub and it's a plant called cyrilla, spelt with a C. So C-Y-R-I-L-L-A, cyrilla. As far as I know, there's only one species in the genus, um, and it has a really interesting distribution because you find it in all of the Americas. You'll find it in northern South America, you'll find it in Central America, mm-hmm. and, you, uh, and I think in some of the islands off the coast as well, and also in southern North America. Um, and Cerilla race flora is... It's a sort of a semi-evergreen shrub, so it never be, uh, in some parts of its range it is actually deciduous, but the form we're growing here seems to be semi-evergreen, and I'm not quite sure where its particular origin is of this particular form. Uh, but when the cool weather sets in in the autumn, early winter, about half or more of the leaves will go wonderful shades of red. They hang on the plant for months and then drop off. Um, it will grow to uh, four to five metres, so it's a large shrub. Uh, it's never dense and bushy. So if you're doing nefarious things, you don't plant one of these to hide you from the neighbours. Okay. Because they'll be able to look straight at you. Uh, (laughs) I quite like plants with an open, airy habit, personally. Uh, Most people seem to want everything bushy. I'm not Mm. quite sure why, but that seems to be a thing. Mm. Um, And so if I say, oh, you should plant a cerilla, they'll go, oh, but I can see through it. Mm. Uh, but that's sort of part of its charm. Mm. Uh, it flowers in midsummer, which I find particularly useful as a large shrub. It has tiny white flowers that hang down in little racemes that form at the base of the current season's growth. And they're tiny white flowers and they look really pretty. And then when the flowers die, uh, they turn into little coppery, bangly things, mm. which look, I actually think are they very look pleasant. Yeah, yeah, and so yeah. not many plants you can say, oh, I planted it for its dead flowers. <laughs> 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 so True. with Cerilla, you could in fact say well I really like the dead flowers. Um, It seems to be fairly drought tolerant, Um, it seems to cope with the heat reasonably well, Uh, so it's not one of these you know sort of delicate Rhododendron-like shrubs that you know some people think is all I grow at Mount Batten. Um, uh, it should be growable around most of suburban Melbourne. I don't see any reason why you couldn't grow a cerilla. It obviously does better where the soil's better, but most plants do anyway. But I don't think it's particularly fussy about soil. It doesn't seem to have a predisposition for an acid soil or an alkaline soil or anything. So mm. that doesn't seem to worry it particularly. Um, and I just think it's a really, really good plant. And um, but it won't do all the things that some people want. It won't grow bushy, um, but that shows off its flowers too. That's the other thing I meant to say. Anything that has sort of droopy flower spikes or flowers, if they grow too bushy, all the flowers mm. hide in amongst the leaves and you don't see them. Whereas with Cerilla, because it has a nice open, airy sort of uh, form, you actually see all the flowers. So I think it's, you know, it works rather well. So Cerilla racemosa flora, um, in some parts of its range it's called ironwood, um, it's also known as leatherwood in some parts of its range, which is very confusing for us that Australians because mm-hmm. we have our own leatherwood that's not at all related. So yeah. I stick with the botanicals, Cyrilla's not that hard to say, yeah. um, or spell. Uh, so uh, I think it's just that one of those really quirky, interesting plants that we should be seeing more in people's gardens and yet you rarely do. Every time I see one, I get excited.
2: I just find your definition of a bush as being four to five metres quite interesting. So, what do you call? How tall does something have to be? It's not about height.
1: It's not about height. It's about form, (laughs) from my perspective, because cerilla is multi-stemmed and bushy. It's not tree-like, okay. uh, so it doesn't produce one or two major trunks and then a canopy. Um, and I still think four metres is not a, actually all that tall. Um, uh, and there's certainly trees I grow that I, would be below four metres, but yep. they have a different form. So it's about form for me, not about size. Okay, okay. Um, because, I, you know, you get people who come into the nursery and they say, oh, I want a tree for my garden, and you say, how big do you want it to grow? And they say, three metres. And I say, well, you don't want a tree, then you want a bush. Um, Unless it's a small tree. Yeah, unless it's a... (laughs) We're going to get ourselves into so much (laughs) confusion here any minute, Penny. Uh, So... yeah, for me, a tree doesn't start until you get something at least four metres or so tall anyway, because you've got to be able to walk under it for it to be a tree, in my opinion. Uh, but that
2: wasn't what you just said. Yeah, you know, I know it wasn't, <laughs> but you know,
1: in general, let's I, talk in general terms here and, and not try and find too many exceptions. But I think you can exceptions. get lovely small trees yeah. that
2: are only three metres tall, and you've got the trunk and you've got the yeah, foliage. Yeah. And,
1: you know, you so have, but you can't walk under them as a rule. No. Yeah, so uh, I like a tree for shade, and I think of trees as shade things. Um, And certainly, cerilla has a very bushy. Bushy is the wrong term to use too because it doesn't grow dense. So it's not Mm. bushy, bushy, but it has a very bush-like form. Uh, So it rarely has a single stem. It normally has multiple trunks that come from ground level. Uh, It bushes down low. I mean, you can prune it and shape it. You could probably trunk it up if you wanted to. I mean, there wouldn't be any real Mm. reason why you couldn't turn it into a small tree, but its natural form is very bushy. Okay. Um, And I just think it's a remarkable thing. And, And because its coloured leaves aren't really reliant on... The sort of things that turn maples and other things into colored trees, uh, it should get the lovely colored leaves in it immaterial of where you 're planting it okay so yeah, so I think it 's something people should have a look at, and as long as they 're not trying to hide themselves from the neighbors, it could have some application in their garden. great yeah, okay, oh, let's got get some to
0: calls. our next lot of calls, and first up we have Sharon out in Cheltenham. Good morning, Sharon. Oh,
4: good morning, Pam. Uh, look, just a quick question. Um, First year i have got some kiwi fruit hmm. I'm just
1: not sure when to pick them. <laughs> <laughs> They're an odd fruit aren't they? They're hard to sort of get your yeah. head around a bit. Yeah. Well, Penny, you,
2: you Um look, yeah, I'm not 100% sure either. I would I would go by this their size and yeah. how long they've been And on they their, will on r- the vine. After, they will after ripen, so um, you can yeah, pick them Yeah. So and you can pick them and mm. they'll ripen off the, off mm. the vine. Um and you know just experiment with them, yeah. really. Yeah. Sorry, I'm not, I'm not really... Normally much, in right? our
1: area, I know people who grow them in our area, they wait for a bit of a, a cold snap, yeah. and that sort of helps to start the ripening process of the fruit. Um, but really, if they're full size, you could probably pick them. Uh, I don't know whether you've got any... Uh, Birds or possums or anything else around that might get them first. So Absolutely. sometimes it's well, sometimes it's a good idea to get them before the others notice. I know. Uh, and bring them in, and they will ripen up inside, and they'll still be nice and sweet. They won't be like some store bought ah. things that are picked too unripe mm-hmm. and mm. never really develop decent flavour. Mm, uh, yeah. They should still be flavoursome.
0: Yep. Okay. I know Karen Sutherland picks hers while they're still really very firm. Yeah. Yes. Um, and just yeah. allows them to ripen Riten up inside. inside. So. Yeah.
1: Yes. Just don't make the Pavlovas too early.
0: No.
3: (laughs) Okay.
4: Thanks for that. Okay, then.
0: Bye. And uh, next up, we have uh, Pat in St Kilda. Good morning, Pat.
3: Hello. Good morning. Hello.
1: Go ahead, Pat.
3: Um, I've got some tyres which I regrettably picked up off the street during the permaculture time when they used to make things out of tyres, yep. little ponds and this, that and the other.
0: Swans. But
3: now, uh, it's a bit... I don't know what to do with them. And also, I picked up a blue spruce when it was tossed out in the street. It was the next christmas tree. I took pity on it and dragged it home, and now it's growing. Mm-hmm. And I've got it in the biggest pot I could possibly find, and it's still growing. Yeah. And... Uh, I don't know what to do with it. I I, I thought maybe I could roll it over and grow it sideways. No, I don't think
1: that's a particularly good idea for (laughs) the poor blue spruce. I think that might be uh, an indignity it won't cope well with. Um, What I would do with the blue spruce, you can extend its life in a pot by appropriate root pruning. So during winter, if it's been in the pot for some years, during winter, tip it on its side, roll it backwards and forwards a bit till you loosen it, and pull it out of the pot, then... Get an old bow saw or something like that, and you cut wedges of roots out like you were cutting cake back towards the trunk, so the narrow part of the wedge would be towards the trunk, and it was wider as you come back. And you cut about three wedges out, going back to fairly close to the trunk. Uh, You discard those three wedges. You put the tree back in the pot again. And then you refill with some new potting mix and, and what have you into the gaps. And what that does is it stops it from becoming really, really root bound. And you can keep, I had a, a Norway spruce I used as a Christmas tree for about 20 years. And it ended up dying because it got dry at some point. But it, was, it wasn't due to my root pruning. But every few years I'd roll it out of the pot and I'd cut a different slice out. And I just kept working my way around the tree. And I got 20 years out of it, so mm. I don't know how long you want to keep this tree, <laughs> but it might outlast you if you do that to it or get some help to do it if it's if it's beyond you. Um, but that works quite well. And, and the tree will slow down in its growth, so it's not going to grow exponentially larger. Uh, so you're sort of treating it like a bonsai. So you could do that. As far as the tyres are concerned, I'm not quite sure what you're going to do with those.
2: I I would put them out in your next um, rubbish collection. They won't take them. Sorry?
1: They,
3: they, They refuse to take them.
2: Okay, that makes life difficult. Well, right. the,
0: the other thing I would suggest <laughs> is go to um, a tyre company, someone, you know, where, you, yeah. where you, you, you would go to buy a new set of tyres and smile very nicely at them and ask if they could recycle them for you when yeah. they... Because they, cause they if, have to recycle
2: they their do, old ones. they do get recycled. Yeah, and the, and the yeah, other thing too is
1: if you've got a car and you get your car serviced somewhere, the garage where you get your car serviced... They service, might do it too. They might be prepared to deal with it as well. Yep.
3: Um Anyway, uh, thank you about the tree. I never would have thought
1: of a giant bonsai. Well, yeah. look, conifers do bonsai quite well. So, um, And as I said, I got away with it for a Christmas tree for about 20 years. So, um, well, I won't uh,
3: live that long. Uh,
1: I'm 80 now. Well, I'm well, expecting a phone call in about 20 years' time to say that you've had enough of this blasted blue spruce, really. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and, look, the other thing that you can do and, uh, is sort of leading up to Christmas is actually put it out on the lawn and say free. Yes. Put a free oh sign, no, sign on get it get and it then someone will come and pick it up. No, I don't, don't trust anybody hard. with it. Oh, okay. yes, yeah, so it's become oh, part of the family. <laughs> that's fine.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: Sorry, I, uh, wasn't, I wasn't sure whether you wanted to keep it or not. Oh, yeah.
3: only oh, uh, if it's got a beautiful place in a beautiful uh, with a lovely spot where it can grow and grow yeah, and grow.
1: Yeah, well, you never know. You might be able to find it a, a, a caring home uh, in due course. But in the meantime, you certainly can treat it like a bonsai. Thank you. That's a pleasure.
2: Okay, then. Bye. Can I, can I just say that as far as tyres go, you should never grow edible plants in tyres. No, no. Because too they much leach nasty the chemicals yes. into the soil, and, yes. um, which get into the, into the fruit and veggies. So, yeah, I, so that idea of the stack of tyres to you um, grow your spuds yeah. in is a really, really <laughs> bad idea. Bad yes, ideas, mm. yeah. So I, I um, went to visit a community garden eight or nine years ago, and they had used tyres all over the place. And, oh. growing. and I just had to say to them, look, you shouldn't be doing this. You need to get rid of those tyres, you need to start again. Mm. Um, and that was awful because yeah. they put so much work into it. But, yeah. Yeah. yeah, anyway.
0: Well, it's better that they know. Yes, indeed. Yep. Okay. Uh, if you'd like to join us, that number again, nine four one nine zero one double five to speak to Penny and Stephen or to have a chat to Liz on the outside line, nine four one nine eight three double seven. We are running through until 9.15, so plenty of time for you to uh, give us a call. Stephen, you've got another one there.
1: Yes, the last plant I brought along this morning uh, has an interesting and chequered history. Uh, The original form, the non-variegated leaf form, is a New Zealand plant called Grislenia littoralis. And it's used a lot in New Zealand and coastal areas because it has uh, a good salt res- uh, resistance. Okay. Um, and they use it for hedging and screening and, and what have you. Uh, um,
2: Steve, I love the way with the botanical name that sometimes you know immediately where it would be growing. As soon as you said literal, yeah, literalis, lit- then I immediately thought literal zone, that must be yeah, growing grow near the sea. Yeah, yeah. yeah,
1: so there you go. Latin yeah. is really useful yes. uh, for all those who like the English names. Um, now, Grislenia is called broadleaf. Uh, in New Zealand for obvious reasons has a big rounded leaf on it Mm. in fact this is only a pup and its leaves will get substantially bigger there's quite a lot of variegated selections that have been made of this plant over the years and this one was made in Ireland uh, and it's called Bantry Bay which sounds exceedingly (laughs) Irish Um, uh, (laughs) the other variegate that I have has a, a, a yellowish white edge around the leaf Bantry Bay the well, vast parts of the leaf have uh, have gone to the, the creamy white, so it's sort of all marbled and mm. what have you. It's, it's a pretty variegation. It's a really good, strong I variegation. I don't really
2: like variegations, but that's yeah. quite nice. No, I think
1: it's pretty, and it's great yeah. for floral work. I yep. mean, you pick the branches of it and use it in, in floral work. It's fantastic. It lasts and lasts and mm. lasts in water. It's a fairly bushy, shrubby plant that probably, well, we're Given enough time, we'd probably grow up to four metres, but um, Bantry Bay, because it's quite heavily variegated, doesn't grow all that vigorously. Uh, mm. In general, the more variegated a plant is, the less vigor it has because it hasn't got as much chlorophyll in the leaves, of course. Uh, and Bantry Bay is not completely stable either, so you will get the odd shoot oh. that comes up that's green, so you need to keep an eye on it. I don't have any issue with a shrub that's not completely stable. My issue is with huge trees that are not stable because mm-hmm. if you've got your great big uh, box elder or something that um, has grown up to 40 feet tall and it's got a big green branch right up in the top of it. I'm too old. Yeah, I'm too old (laughs) to clamber up blasted trees and take bits out of them, and it's rather expensive to get the tree surgeons to do it. And the plant looks leprous. Yes, you know, know, it's either got to be variegated or it's got to be green. Yes, but shrubs because they're at eye level, I can find the the non-variegated pieces quickly, I can remove them exponentially and without any risk to my health, Um, and so I'm not particularly worried if it's not 100% stable. But certainly if you're going to propagate your own plants, you've got to be careful where you take your cuttings from to make sure you get the the properly variegated pieces of it. It would make a great tub specimen, it's very shade tolerant, uh, and it will keep its variegation in the shade, so if you're looking for something to to lighten up a dark corner, uh, Bantry Bay could be very good for that not particularly uh, water hungry, uh, so it's reasonably drought tolerant. Uh, It's probably not happy when it gets to 45 and a howling northwesterly. It will cook on the top if it gets really hot and it's out in the full sun. But otherwise, it's a very hardy shrub. And as I said, there's several different selections of uh, Grizzlenia littoralis out there. Uh, This is probably the most spectacular in its variegated form. There's some really nice... Appley green selections of it that are quite good that they're flogging around now as a a screening or hedging plant, which could be quite lovely. But yeah, I like this one. Uh, You don't see it grown. It's probably because it's taken me sort of two years to get this one ready for sale. Um, And nurseries are getting more and more into the if we can get it out in six to twelve months into the marketplace, well then you can make quick money out of it. But if it's going to take two years then a lot of nurseries stop doing Mm -hmm. it. and In fact, it's getting to the point where some things that take several years to get a really good plant out of, you just can't buy anymore. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, people just won't do it. Um, And the public won't pay the price either, which is sort of one of those things that catches you from both directions. If they see a plant that looks very similar to another plant um, and yet there's a a serious price difference between the two and they don't understand the differences in, in cultural requirements and time involved, they'll always buy the cheap one. Mm. So, you know, I think people need to start looking at the value of plants in a different way in some ways. Uh, but anyhow, I like Brasilinia. Um There's, I think, two species in New Zealand, Littoralis and Lucida. Um, there's about another three or four species that come from Chile, so it's one of those sort of Gondwana connection type plants. Um, and um, none of them have flowers of any particular merit. Some of them have interesting flowers, is about all you could say about them, but the flowers aren't what it's about. And I guess for me, the only other really odd thing about Grislenia is that its leaf buds aren't in the axle of the leaf. They're halfway up the internode. Okay. So... I mean, it's not a visually exciting thing to know about, but uh, you can, if if you were here to see it now, and Penny can, uh, the leaf is down here and the bud is up there. Okay. And so the buds mm. are halfway between mm. the nodes, which is something I don't know of any other group of plants that do that. Okay. So why? I don't know. Mm. One of life's little mysteries. Okay. <laughs> but, yeah, it's interesting. So there you go. That's the last of my plants for today.
0: Great. Okay. Now, Stephen, we should also talk about... Madagascar.
1: Oh, yes. Because time's creeping on. Yes, and we haven't got enough bookings yet. So, if people are thinking about uh, the possibilities, I would certainly get on the blower to Australian studying abroad straight away. The tour starts, I think, on the 9th of September and runs till the 1st of October. Um, I haven't got the dates with me, but I'm going to be doing a talk for Plant Trust on Madagascar uh, down at Domain House, I think in July, June or July. Uh, next time I come in, I'll make sure I've got the dates. So, okay. if people want to come along and see some visuals of what Madagascar is all about. And certainly those who can't afford or aren't up for a third world trip might like to come and sort of armchair enjoy Madagascar. So I'm perfectly happy for people to come and do that. Um, And so next time I'm in, I'll make sure I've got the dates for for the talk. Um, I'm pretty sure it's going to be at Domain House uh, and it'll be a sort of, I think, 6.30 for 7 or something like that. Uh, And there'll be a small charge and there'll be, you know, nibbles to start and what have you uh but we we're only discussing it the other night so it's just firming up at the moment um but um yeah madagascar i mean what more could you want you've got six species of baobab tree um and we include uh, a visit to the to the baobab um, avenue on the west coast which is a world heritage site uh, And we try and make sure we're there when the sun's going down or the sun's coming up so that you can get those fantastic shots of all the trunks with the light shining on them. Um, And and they're
0: often fondly um, known as upside-down trees.
1: Well, they sort of look that way. They look that way, don't they? Yeah, (laughs) particularly if you see them uh, in their dormant period when they've got no foliage on them because you've got this Mm -hmm. funny sort of crown of root-like branches sitting on the top of this great big tall trunk. Uh, And they are unique. Oh, totally. So, you know, uh, and we we can guarantee you sightings of at least three of the six species of baobabs that grow in Madagascar. One or two of them are quite isolated in areas that are too hard to get into. But three of them actually grow quite close to each other uh, conveniently. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we can show you grandadiri, which is the main species that uh, is the... um, Bayabab Avenue, and we can also show you Addisonia czar and Addisonia rubrostipa. Uh So there's three of the six species that you can see. And, of course, it's not about gardens the trip, trip to Madagascar. It's about the environment and going out into the wild and seeing things in their natural habitat. And it's also about animals, not just about plants. Mm. Um, so although we'll see spiny forest and baobabs and all sorts of different floral types... We'll also be seeing lots of animals. I adore lemurs, not only because they're cute and furry. Uh, which is Some
0: of them are so comical.
1: Yeah, and some of them are very, very funny. Uh, but because they're primates, they're also very inquisitive. And they come down to find you sometimes. Yes. So I can feel quite confident uh, to guarantee lots of lemur sightings. Whereas if you've got overseas visitors here and you're rushing around looking for a koala or a kangaroo (laughs) uh, to show your French visitors or whatever, um, you're sometimes very lucky to find them, you know, see them every day except when you want them. Exactly. Uh, But the lemurs are really good that way. And, of course, chameleons are fantastic because all you've got to do is get your eye in because they just sit there. Mm. So once you've found one, you've got ample time to take a picture. <laughs> because it just sits there. Uh, and its eyes all sort of rotate, but apart from that, it, it'll just sit there sort of wobbling. Uh, and I know last time I was there, we saw the smallest um, uh, chameleons, which are tiny little things in a genus called Brucasia, uh, right up to the big ones, which are sort of, you know, in the old measurement, at least a couple of feet long, uh, in the wonderful shades of green and, and brown and things that they turn. Uh, and you'll see... All sorts of other creatures of all sorts and you visit villages and you see how they live Um, I mean some of the villages we go into where they've got specific um, uh, trades that they tend to do like hammering out um, garden tools out of waste metal and things. It's like going back into the times of Dickens. Yes. You know, they've got these, these furnaces going and little boys on the end of huge big bellows making things work and guys in a pair of shorts and nothing else belting these things and sparks going everywhere. And it is the most remarkable thing to see. I mean... Work's health and safety doesn't seem to have any impact on Madagascar <laughs> whatsoever. Um, but, you know, to be able to see how people live uh, is really fascinating. And the, and the people of Madagascar are a unique group of people. So it's all about immersing yourself in the country. Mm. So if you're interested, please go into, you can either go through my Dixonia Rare Plants website or you can go through the website of Australian Studying Abroad um, and have a look at the um, proposed itinerary, uh, and they've got the costs and everything in there. And I have to say, although ASA give it a very high rating as far as the fitness you require, it's not quite so much about how fit you are, it's about how resilient you are. Uh, as far as I'm concerned. If you can cope with hot, dry weather and hot, steamy weather, and if you can sit in a four-wheel drive going through potholes bigger than the vehicle for hour on end to get to the next place, um, so it can be a bit white knuckly, but it's it's perfectly fine. Um, If you can do those things... um, I wouldn't be worried about being overly fit. I mean, you've got to be able to walk up a series of stairs and all that sort of stuff, uh, and you need to be able to walk out into the forest. But we're not mountain climbing. No. Um, and we also cater to different levels of fitness on the tour because you've got me... That might be a mixed blessing. Uh, You've got our local national guide that goes with us the whole trip. And every time we go into a national park, you employ the young guides there, uh, which is what you have to do. It's, It's mandatory to have the local guides working for you as well. So if we've got a group that aren't overly fit, well, they do the little walk. If we've got somebody who's much fitter, they do the middle walk. And mm. if we've got somebody who's, you know, along uh, trekking up in the mountains all the time, well, they can do the, the biggest walk. Uh, and you're still guaranteed lots of sightings and all that sort of stuff. So don't be frightened off. Uh, as long as you're resilient and you can cope with a little bit of discomfort occasionally, um, maybe you should think about doing it. Mm. And I have to say I'm really worried about Madagascar at the moment because the – the clearing and degradation of their environment is going ahead apace and it's really, really scary. And I think the more people who visit the country as a tourist, the more they realise the value in the tourist dollar, which means that they've got to value their natural environment mm. as well. So I see it as a, as a good thing that we go in as tourists. Absolutely, uh, It encourages them to then appreciate their animals and mm. their plants and things more mm. because they know somebody else does and and they're prepared to pay pay good money to be there. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's happening in September if we can get enough people to come along. So please consider it. it's one of those once-in-a-lifetime trips. Uh, you'll never go anywhere like Madagascar again oh, once no. you've done Madagascar. It's just so uniquely different. And I love going back. I mean, you know, so I really do want this trip to go ahead. So um, we're limited to 16 people, so it's not a big group. Um, but we need to get close to the 16 for it to pay as well. So it's one of those groups where we don't have a lot of, um, a lot of leeway. Yep. So there you go.
0: And, and, and we should also say that although you might have to be a little bit resilient in, mm. in some aspects, Um, the accommodation has improved vastly from when I went. Oh,
1: yeah, well, it was fairly primitive (laughs) when when you and I went there, (laughs) Pam. But no, some of the resort places we stay in that are on the outskirts of some of the national parks are world class. Yes. They are just beautiful. There's you know almost always a swimming pool. You have lovely bungalows that you stay in, so you've got your own space. I mean, one of the ones we stay in at Asalu, you basically get a house. You've got upstairs and downstairs. Uh, so there's bedrooms upstairs and bedroom downstairs. You've got your own private bathroom. You've got your balcony. Um, what more you me. want? You know, <laughs> and so, you know, some of them are quite palatial. So, yes, the accommodation's fine. Uh, all the... Everything internal is paid for, which is another interesting thing there 's not extras with the Madagascar trip because we have to keep people together, so all the meals are paid for, uh, all your park entry fees are paid for, your internal flights, which there 's normally at least one uh, uh, is paid for uh, so the only money you need to take with you once you get there is money for alcohol and souvenirs really. Mm. There's really nothing else you need to take money for. So once you've up, uh, put out the money to start with, there's not going to be a lot of extras. Mm. So it's, it's, a, it's a good tour in lots of ways, I think. So oh, fantastic. And I want to go back, so come with me. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
2: okay. Um, Penny, um, can I – I don't know whether Karen's already talked about this. Has she talked about the tomato book and the award? that we've won no oh Oh, fantastic there you you go why not indeed um janice our co-author entered the book in the international publishing awards which are available for um small publishers and self-published books um and they're based in new york and um there's quite a few different categories but in the house and garden category our tomato book won the gold medal wow fabulous so and I'm not sure how many entries, but apparently it's in the hundreds of books um, in each, in that category. So. Fantastic! Um, yeah, you sort of it's expect it's very... it would
1: be, because garden and home books are a fairly yes. big genre, aren't yes. they? Oh, so yes, they you are. You'd expect an awful yeah. lot of titles. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. So, so, yeah, we only found out about it sort of two weeks ago. Okay. And, um, it's a slightly tricky situation, because some overseas awards are more about the people who are presenting the awards making money. Um, and they can be in some ways a little Mm. bit dodgy Mm. um, because you then buy the the products of it and you can use it to promote your book and all that. But these awards have been going for 15 years now and actually do have quite a lot of credibility and and, um, are regarded as... um, you know, even the distributor mm. said, you know, that this is a really good thing that you've, that you So do you get award. to put a sticker on the front we of the do. books? No. Do. Fantastic. So we've, the problem is that, that we've got our own copies that we will be putting stickers mm. on and it's a nice gold sticker, but, um, the ones that are at the distributor, we, we're, it's, it's a bit harder to oh, get. Oh, yeah, because they're already book. in box, don't yes, they? And they'd have to undo them all. All, <laughs> and all of that. So we're just working that way, our way through that at the moment. But, um, yeah, so it, it's pretty exciting and, and, um, I think uncertain times have meant that books all over the place are not selling quite as well as they were at the end of mm. last year. So this, we actually sold out the tomato book, sold out of its first print run, and we, we've done another, we've done a reprint, um, but sales have dropped off quite a bit. So it, it'll be really, you know, I think winning this medal might help. To bring it back into the consciousness again, and, mm-hmm. and once we get back, and, and it's going to be tomato, plant, tomato season. planting season soon. Well, we? indeed. Yes. <laughs> so that, people need to and have and their that coffee. comes around every year. Yeah, right? yeah right, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, yeah. yeah, so we were we were really chuffed. By oh, that. So, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, so that that was great. So I just thought I'd mention that, but I thought Karen might have already said something about it. No, I, I really actually not. we actually
3: haven't
0: caught up with Karen okay. for quite a while. She's been busy. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. So uh, no, yeah. that's that's excellent. Yeah.
2: And um, if I get back to my garden, um, I've only just started weeding, so, <laughs> <laughs> so I haven't planted my garlic and I haven't oh got anything dear. yet. So um, yeah. So so putting together this this book about my friends' baskets and and trying to keep up with Organic Gardener magazine and and various other things has just meant that I haven't spent as much time in the garden as I want to, but I actually love weeding. Mm. So you well, know, I feel really good about a day's weeding. Yes. You know, at the yeah. end of the
1: day you come in and you say, look at that. Yes. You know, yeah. Doesn't that look so So
2: nice? what, I've, what I've got in the middle of the lawn at the moment, I have this huge pile of branches that are for mulching. Oh, yes. Um, and as I'm weeding, I need to get this mulching done so that I can put the mulch over the bits that I've weeded. So that's the sort of what I'm trying to do. But so far I've only put in one really good day of weeding. i sort of... When I'm working, I duck out and do half an hour of weeding and then go Which back you should and do, do, because, do a bit more writing. Yeah, because yes.
1: if you're stuck in an office at a computer, yeah. yep. you do need to get up and move about a bit. often. Yes. yes. So, yeah. so, so it's a it's good not excuse. An ex- well, it's a good excuse, but it's not really an excuse. It's a necessity. That's right. <laughs> yeah,
2: so, so my garden's still a bit chaotic, but I'm hoping to get the broad beans and the peas and those yeah. sort of things in in the next week or so.
1: Oh, I'm starting yeah, to really feel holier than thou. Yeah, <laughs> sure. And you thought you were
2: late. Well, <laughs>
1: uh, well I was from, for what I would normally do. Yeah. You know, yeah. I normally get my broad beans in in sort of the end of March or something yeah, like no, that, I'm and they're well underway by now, as yeah. the rule. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, so it was a bit late for me anyway for a lot of these things. But it's surprising, once you get the beds clean, it doesn't take you long to actually get no that way. side of but, it done.
2: But the other thing is that because my climate is milder, I can mm. put things in a little bit later yeah. because they do more growing yeah. in, that, in that time, whereas with your co- extra cold, I'll you be need interested to get see them, how them my, in yeah. earlier yeah. Yeah. To be, because they slow down.
1: Yeah, well, I'll be interested in to see region. how the broad beans do this year. I mean, they're all germinating well. They're all yep. starting to poke through the ground quite well. They were put in about. Fortnight ago, I suppose, Uh, not long after I got back, and the garlic went in at about the same time. Um, And uh, so, because I'm normally a sort of March broad bean person, I'll I'll be interested to see whether I lose much time, or how big they get, or whether there's any great differences Mm. in my crop putting Mm. them in a little later. Mm. So anyhow, all those things, it's always worth the the look. Now all I've got to do is get all my tulips in. Oh gosh. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I only bought 200 this year. Only. Yeah, yeah. So Rachel from Upper Tesla has made sure she sent me a box of 200 red tulips. So now I've got to get them in.
2: <laughs> so are these all different cultivars? No, so they're no, all the one? All
1: the one. And, I, you're,
2: I, and you're replanting each year? You're putting more put in? I always put
1: more in. I always leave the tulips that are there. Because of our cool climate, I regularly get a reasonably good show for several years afterwards. Yep. And, and some cultivars actually go on really well. Um, others just fade away. So, you know, you learn as, mm. you, as you try different ones. Mm. Um, but I always try and put in at least a couple of hundred tulips every year in perhaps, preferably, I'll get this in a minute preferably in a clean site so that they've got a nice area and they're all nice and cheap by jowl because tulips are one of the few flowers I reckon that you can plant where you get that concentration of colour mm. and so if you plant mm. all one cultivar and you plant them reasonably close together you get this sweep of red or yellow or orange or whatever yeah. the, the case may be um, I don't think I can think of any other flower that gives quite the same sort of concentration. So I like to use tulips that way. I'm not a confetti tulip person. Mm. Um, mm. They don't work for me if you've got them all over the yep. place and they're yep. different colours need and different heights. Yeah, need them in dense batches. And there's something about a good dark red tulip that really floats my boat. I really love <laughs> okay. them. So
2: what, what color? Uh,
1: well, it's one I'm not f- terribly familiar with. Rachel sent it to me and I haven't really taken that much notice, but she said it's basically the same cultivar or the similar cultivar to the one I've been growing for years called Ile de France. Okay. Uh, And it is a really good shade of red. So she said it's sort of the same thing. So I don't quite know what that means. I think with tulips, because they become virused eventually, Mm. they have to move on to a new cultivar to sort of... Uh, keep the same colour range available right. but it's, it's sort of like Ile de France yeah. um, and So, so
2: Stephen, someone who's not in your cold region they can still plant tulips can't they? but they will probably only get one year out yeah, of them.
1: Yeah, you've got to look at them as slightly yeah. expensive annuals um, yeah. and so yes, you buy your tulips uh, plant them, the flower bud is already inside a well grown tulip bulb so you will flower it this year um, and you may or may not flower it the next year um, it's sometimes worth leaving them in just to see what happens because certain cultivars do seem to have the propensity to reflower. Um, so until you know whether it's one of those, I'd leave them in and see what happens. If they don't flower the next year, well, then you know not to plant that same one and keep it, but plant it and enjoy it and then and discard it. And, of course, they, they grow quite well in pots, so you can have a pot of tulips sitting on the front mm. steps yeah, or whatever and enjoy them for the fortnight they're in flower, um, What I tend to do with tulips that I've decided don't work for me more than one year, and that's generally the black ones Mm. for me, and I'm not saying that's in every area, but those sort of queen of the night type tulips don't seem to come back for me. So as soon as the flowers are finished, I pull them out and throw them in the compost, and then I can reuse that area for something else. Yep. Um, So I enjoy them, take pictures of them, get all smug about having all these lovely black tulips, and then I just throw them away. And I get rid of them before they die down because I can find them.
2: So the whole thing about putting tulips in the fridge, is that something that is a waste of time? I think
1: it's a waste of time. Uh, it's not about making the tulips set flowers, by the way. The tulips, if they're big enough, will set a flower immaterial of the climate. but it's about the length of stem you're going to get. Okay. So if you don't give them the chill and they still set a flower, they're likely to be shorter, uh, So, but they can still flower. But... Um, Certainly the ones you buy from a shop, there's no point in fr- refrigerating those. They're ready, to, ready go. to go. So I would just plant them. Yep. Uh, and in fact, I've always just planted them, So and I've never had an issue with it. So if they're well-grown chula bulbs that you've got from a reputable supplier, you've got a flower in there. Uh, and so it's just a matter of planting them. Mm. And I never bother with lifting them, drying them, and refrigerating them and all that sort of thing. I mean, life's too busy. Yeah. You know, so if they But come if, if you
2: had a one that you really loved and you is, oh, it, look, is it, it still worth it doing? It could or still not? be worth
1: doing, uh, but yeah. remember the crisper, not the freezer. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and you'd only need to give them three or four weeks. They don't have to mm. be in there all winter uh, or all mm. whatever. Uh, Really, you'd be doing them in the late autumn anyway, uh, ready to plant in the winter. So three or four weeks is normally enough in the crisper um, if that's going to elongate the stems for you. But you, there's no point in putting small tulip bulbs into the crisper because that's not going to have any impact because they won't have any buds in them. Yep. So it's not going to encourage them to flower. Mm. Uh, and certainly the cost that it is to buy tulips, it's sometimes quicker, simpler, and you certainly get a better show from first-year tulips. So... You know, you plant tomatoes and expect to plant new ones next year. Mm. Yes, exactly. Uh, yep. And so there's some plants that I just see as a dinner out for the garden sort of thing, you know, a <laughs> s- special treat. Yep. And tulips, for me, are my special treat. Yep. So if I don't get them back again, I don't see that as a waste. I just it's, mm-hmm. It gives me a space to plant a different colour or a different thing or yeah. oh, it's
2: just I mean, some of these things get into our gardening culture. That, yeah. You know, you should put them in the crisper and the, yeah. then you'll get flowers. And mm. I, for a long time now, I've known that that's... Probably not the case, yeah, and I no. was just interested in it. No, it certainly
1: your... doesn't seem to matter, and you've certainly got to have more time on your hands than I've got yep. if you're going to fiddle like
2: mm. that. And more room in your crisper. Well, there's that as well. I mean, we don't have a <laughs> yeah, particularly big Yeah, I wouldn't to like fit 200 in. <laughs> yeah, well, and, you
1: know, I do grow tulips in in hundreds, not in in... Fives and tens, yes. uh, and when the box arrived with the two hundred tulips in it, you know, I thought, well, that's about the size of my crispa. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you know, I wouldn't be able to have any vegetables in there. Yeah. So if,
0: if you're if you're in a cool climate like where you are mm. at Mount Macedon, um, wouldn't the soil over winter? Pretty normally, much cool enough to have the will, similar. But there are effect. some
1: cultivars that have been bred, obviously, for their flower colour, form, or whatever, without any consideration of their cold requirements, and. I think some of them do it well in Holland, but we're still not cold enough here right. uh, for them to overwinter in the ground and, yep. and get good flowers on okay. them. Um, and just some of them just aren't really tough. Some of them are really weak and miserable. And so, you know, they have been pumped up, ready to plant and flower. But unless you're prepared to pump them full of food and, and keep doing all those things and then probably put them in the crisper, uh, you're never going to get really good flowers on them again. So, mm. um, oh, and the other thing you've got to consider too is if you're trying to be tricky. I did this a couple of years ago. I decided I was going to have black and white tulips mixed together. I thought this could be fun. I'll try that. What I didn't take into consideration was the flowering thyme. (laughs) Oh, <laughs> ah. so it didn't work it didn't work because the black <laughs> tulips came out at a different time to the white oh. tulips because I hadn't thought it through and thought now are they going to synchronise their flowering or is one later than the mm. other it just yes. didn't dawn on me I thought the effect of having black and white tulips in a little cluster in several spots along one of my borders I thought would be a rather fun thing to do but it didn't work oh. so there you go, it probably makes everybody feel better that I make silly blunders <laughs> like that as well so um, yeah. So if you've made mistakes in your garden I'm still doing it so yeah so And
0: is, you are you still growing them in your asparagus bed?
1: Yes, although I had a little bit of a disaster. Well, not a disaster, but things didn't work quite the way I was expecting them this year because I'd forgotten that where my asparagus is is also where the miner's lettuce tends to Mm re-self-seed itself everywhere, Uh, which is fine with the asparagus and the miner's lettuce, but the miner's lettuce grows during the winter, so therefore it tends to swamp the tulips. Right. And so unless I'm prepared to cull all the miner's lettuce out, um, it's not working as well as I'd hoped. Yeah, okay. Uh, And I don't want to lose my miner's lettuce, actually. I find it a really useful. So really good winter green. Yeah. Mm. Um, so I'm really happy to have it. Uh, but I might have to consider the asparagus bed as asparagus and miners' lettuce, not asparagus and tulips. Yep. Um, so.
0: I mean, it, the idea was good.
1: But yeah. Oh, look, it, it sounded like a great idea at the time, but I'd just forgotten about the miners' lettuce. And yep. of course, it wasn't long after I put the tulips in that the miners' lettuce started to germinate. <laughs> and you thought,
0: and oh I, no.
1: <laughs> oh, yes. Now, how's this going to work? So I just let things happen. But the miners' lettuce got far too big yep. and the tulips sort of mm. disappeared under it. And I don't think they got enough light to pump the bulbs up either. So okay. I think the foliage of the tulips was below the miners' <laughs> letters. So um, I don't think the tulips are going to do anything this year. I've left it in to see what happens, but yeah. um, I'll get a few leaves. But I don't think I'll get many tulip flowers okay. this year in the asparagus bed, unfortunately. Okay. But hopefully I'll get some asparagus. That would be nice. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, so that didn't work terribly well. The tulips in the rhubarb bed still seem to perform reasonably well because I put some purple Mm. tulips in with my rhubarb. But the issue with that is then I've got to to crop some early rhubarb to take enough leaves away to allow Mm. for the tulips to do their things. If I don't do that, there's always too much foliage on the rhubarb. Yes, But if I get an early crop of rhubarb out of the bed, that's fine. I don't mind doing that. Uh, And then that gives the tulips space. And and that looks good because you've got the reddish leaves of the, or reddish Mm. stems of the rhubarb and the rich green leaves, and then these beautiful purpley, plummy tulips. Mm. It's a nice combination. Oh, yes. Yeah, so so I'll keep that going if I can, and I'll make sure the miner's lettuce doesn't escape into the rhubarb bed. Yep. Um, (laughs) It's. I love those self-seeding vegetables, but they are something of a challenge to Mm. manage. Uh, I've got a lot of amaranth that comes up all over the place, and I like using it as a green. Um, But it tends to come up in spots you don't necessarily want it, and then you leave it because it's going to be something you can use. Mm. Um, And then the bed sort of doesn't work as a good vegetable bed. So I I still find some of those self-seeding annual vegetables a bit of an issue. But anyhow, I get lots of amaranth and lots of minus letters. Oh, well. And I pick the amaranth for flowers as well. Yep. Uh, so it looks nice in the house. Um, but, yeah, it becomes a bit of a nuisance partway through the season because it comes up through everything. But <laughs> right anyhow. Mm.
0: Yes. I've, I've seen quite tall ones coming up in your pathways. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll
1: sometimes get amaranth that'll get up to about two metres. Yes. And, of course, no other self-respecting vegetable can cope with that. No. <laughs> <laughs> so what can you do?
0: Okay. While well, we've still got time, Stephen, quickly... Um, Two weeks ago, when you were down here, you went racing off because you were going to visit um, a couple of gardens for Plant Trust. Yes, we had... Tell us a
1: bit about it. Yeah, it was great fun. We went to Bendigo, uh, which I do every second Thursday anyway to do radio up up there, so it's sort of like second home these days, Um, but I hadn't been in to have a look around the Bendigo Botanic Gardens for quite a long time, and that place has gone ahead leaps and bounds. It is marvellous. It holds two national collections there. It's got the Lavendula collection that it took over from Rosemary Holmes, Mm. and it's also got the um, Canna Canna Lily collection there of mainly species and Australian cultivars, although there's quite a few others that have been part of the collection, so they stay there. But any new canna that goes in has either got to be a species or an Australian raised canner, because otherwise it's too big a thing to mm. collect um, so they've got the two collections, which was one of the main reasons that we included it in the tour but they've got their new garden of the future that they've developed behind the existing botanic gardens, Okay. Um, and it was only open 12 months ago, and it's remarkable. It's just truly remarkable. People should go and have a look. It's got these wonderful sweeping lawns with sort of a uh, a structure at the end that they use for plays and, and, mm. and things, sort of an amphitheater, like an amphitheater type th- th- yes. thing. thing. Uh, and they've got these sort of sweepy things that go through, these paths that go through, that are all cut lawns. And, and it's a really interesting, quirky planting. It's not... Any particular planting, it's not just natives or it's just not exotics or whatever. It's a mixture of all sorts of things. They've used a lot of structural plants. They've got monkey puzzles in there and all sorts of really Mm. quirky sort of plants growing in there. Um, And there's a sort of central walkway that you go down towards the yellow building at the end that's the amphitheatre thing. Um, And they've put in hedges of, unfortunately, Leyland Cypress, which I'm not particularly fond of. But anyhow, they've put in these hedges and they've got these metal boxes at different heights on stands. Some of them are uh, from ground level up. And so you can walk along and you look through the boxes at different heights and levels through okay. this hedge that they're developing. Um, and uh, so you get sort of weird little vignettes of the garden through these boxes. And some of them you can step into. And the outside of the boxes are a grey colour and the inside's bright pink. Uh, okay. And it's, it's really quirky. extraordinary. It is. Yeah. It, it's very, very so worthwhile.
2: Who, who's the designer? I...
1: Meant to ask that, think okay. not. Oh, I don't know who actually designed it, but just... the, the city council has thrown a lot of money at it yep. and, and they're very supportive of the botanic gardens there, which is always a relief to mm. hear because there's so many botanic gardens, particularly in rural towns and cities, where the local council doesn't give a damn. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Camperdown's one of those places where they're struggling to try and keep mm. their garden going. The friends group's really, really... Um, good, but the council gives them no support. They've got a blasted caravan park in the corner Mm. of the garden that they want to get rid of and the council's allowing them to put more units in and so it's a nightmare. But anyhow, the Bendigo Botanic Gardens, which is up at White Hills, it's not in mm. the centre of Bendigo. Uh, so if you go there, there's a garden in the centre of Bendigo, but it's not the Botanic Gardens. Uh, so you keep going through Bendigo, for heading north, and the Botanic Gardens is up on your left-hand side. Uh, it used to be called the White Hill Botanic Gardens, yes, but they changed right. the name to Bendigo because people don't know where White Hills is unless they live there. Um, and, yes, yeah, so the main body of the gardens is really lovely. They've, they've done lots of interesting planting there. They're replanting a lot of the old heritage trees that are in the garden, making sure they're propagating yep. from them and getting yep. new ones in. Um, and so we had a lovely early part of the day there. And then the final part of the day was uh, to visit the wildflower garden of Marilyn Strang, who used to have the Goldfields Revegetation Nursery. Oh, okay. uh, yep. She's now working from home, and she's growing wildflowers as cut flowers and she's supplying some of the local florists with them and i went in there thinking oh yeah another native garden blah blah Mm. blah but it was remarkable um you know her her passion is growing things that she can pick so she's growing all sorts of interesting western australian things but she's grafting them onto understocks that will survive in her climate and soil Mm, so she's doing a lot of her own grafting onto cuttings and she showed us how she was doing that and all that sort of thing which was fiddly and fascinating Uh, and she had wonderful native plants and there was a lot of stuff in flower Uh, so yeah we had a great day it was a really really good day out so uh, we'll be planning another one probably for the spring somewhere, we haven't decided where Uh, in the meantime we've got my talk on Madagascar as a winter thing we thought Perhaps not going outside is probably a good idea yes, uh, for gone. an event. So, um, yeah, so the Bendigo trip was great. Excellent. And we had, I don't know, 25, 30 people who went along. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had lunch in the Botanic Gardens. And, uh, you yeah, there was morning tea and afternoon tea going for everybody. Uh, we always have a really nice time out. Uh, and we always visit somewhere a bit interesting. Good. So there. You've
0: got a few queries from the outside line oh, there. Corks, have and I? we've got one caller to get through. So while right. you're looking at that, we'll go to our next caller. We have... Uh, Terry, out in Chelsea. Good morning, Terry. Oh,
3: good morning. How are you this morning? Well, thank you. That's good. I'll be quick. Um, thank you. I have. I was just listening to Stephen with the amaranthus, and yep. I have that growing. Yeah. And it goes through our vegetable garden and wherever. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> which my husband doesn't really like. But I didn't... Can we eat the leaves? No. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah,
1: it's like very. You can just use it like a spinach. What I normally do when I cook it, because it doesn't have an awful lot of flavour of its own, I don't think. No. Uh, so I sweat down an onion and a little bit of garlic in a pan with some butter. Oh, okay. uh, And then once that's sweated down, yes. I just stuff all the amaranthus leaves in and keep the yep. heat on low and let it cook down.
2: Oh. And you do need to cook the leaves. You shouldn't eat them fresh no, no, in No, salads. no, no.
1: But ours is the red one, so that's still quite
2: okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Look, there, there are there are lots of different cultivars yeah. of amaranth. Some of them are grown specifically for the seeds, yeah. some, oh, of right. for the flowers, yeah. some of them are grown specifically for the flowers, and some of them are grown specifically for the leaves. So you can oh, sometimes good. get sweeter ones if you go for the specifically leaf ones. Oh, yeah. But really any amaranth leaf can be oh, eaten good. as long as you the cook bradigal, it. Mine are gorgeous in yeah. the red,
3: you know, and they've turned... Lovely autumn colour. Yeah. There. Oh, they're yep. a lovely
1: plant visually in the garden. Yes, they're so, beautiful. Yeah, so there you go. Yes, yeah, So you can eat the amaranth. Oh, thank
3: you. I'll okay. try that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, do. Bye. Okay, great. Bye. Thank you.
1: Thanks. All right, well, we better go through these now. Yes. Penny, you're here so you will be able to tell me. I can't remember what the variety of garlic is that I've got in the garden at home that's doing really well. I know it was rouge something um, that I got from that guy, the organic guy that was up at Teslas a couple of years back. Rouge de something.
2: No.
1: I'm sure, it was rouge.
2: No, not um, Rojo de Castro. One of no, the, the Spanish.
1: No, it was a, it was a French one. Yeah. And and I'm sure it was rouge something.
2: Yeah, not rouge. I can't can't think of a rouge, yeah. but it'll be it'll be um, John one of John Presley's. Yeah. Um, and he was growing. Just give me, you keep talking about something else. All right, well, there is something else we need to deal with, but I was
1: convinced it was Rouge something, but I I may quite have got it wrong. Um, uh, And it was something to do with of the place or something.
2: Uh, Yeah, it's it's a silver skin. And, mm. it, and it grows so it doesn't put up scapes. And no, and, big, and, and it, it keep has keep a slight purplish
1: it. colour to the bowl. To the, yeah, yeah, and
2: to the cloves. Yeah. yeah.
1: All right. Now, uh, Kate from Kingsville has bought, well, she says a corkscrew plant for me. What she's talking about is a corkscrew rush, uh, which has curly leaves. And a lot of the leaves have turned brown. She has got it sitting in water. Um, uh, i repot it. It sounds like it's coming out the bottom of the pot. Um, it sounds to me like it needs either pulling apart and, and dividing or... Repotting into a larger container, and just go through and cut out all the dead leaves. Give it some slow-release fertilizer of some sort. Um, they're actually surprisingly greedy plants if they're going to be growing well, and that should be fine. Okay. So that's all she needs to do. And Penny's <laughs> macking, <me laughs> clicking away on her iPad there to see if she can I find just... out what the blasted garlic is that I've got because it's really been a good garlic, and I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, and I always end up with far more than I can use each year. I gave a whole pile away to a friend of mine who bought me in some kimchi and uh, some pickled turnips the other day. Oh, and okay. So I gave her a whole pile of, uh, of garlic as well, because I'm not going to get through all my garlic this year by the looks of things. So, right. Yeah. So Penny's still fiddling. Sorry,
2: I'm trying. It'll be roast you,
1: Rose duvar. duvar, not Rouge. Rose, Rose Duvar. Rose. Rose Duvar. There we yeah. go. That's the one I'm growing. It's okay. a really
2: nice silver skin.
1: And it's beautiful rouge garlic, garlic. And, it, and, yeah. it, and it stores really well. Yeah, they silver
2: r- skin store for up to 12 months. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've nearly always
1: months. got usable garlic right through until the next yeah. batch is ready. Yeah, I mean, it, it starts be. to shoot, but yeah. it, it, it's yeah. still quite usable right up yeah. until my next batch. So yeah. I'm sort of sticking to that one because, well, one, you don't muddle them all up. Uh, if, you've, if you've only got one variety. True. Uh, and it does seem to do well in my soil and it's, it's acclimatised mm-hmm. really well and I get lovely big fat bulbs good. on it. So yep. it's turned out to be a good garlic mm. for me.
0: Yep. So is that one that's readily available, Penny?
2: It's fairly Diggas readily Diggas it? fairly re- I don't think Diggers has got it, no. Okay. No, but there are a few people who have it. So um, you just need to do a bit of a search yep. on the internet. So So
1: Rose yeah. DeVar. Root, Yeah. Not grow. rouge. No, not rouge. <laughs> not rouge. <laughs> not rouge. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it had something to do with pink or red, yeah. though. You know, I, I just, kept I,
2: As soon as you said rouge, I kept thinking rouge de marmont. And yeah, being, yeah that's my, what I was thinking. I <laughs> yeah. And I just couldn't get to the, <laughs> yeah, to yeah. the so garlic. Yeah, so there you go. No.
1: So that's the garlic I've been growing. If you to want to have
2: those. a look at it, it is it, um, it is on my website, Rose oh, Duvar. So if you go to australiangarlic.net.au, yes. um, you can see which garlic it is that Steve's talking about. But you'll need to just do a bit of a search to find someone who's got it for sale.
1: Yeah, does John sell direct to the public or not? No. No, As a rule, he doesn't. I don't think he does.
2: He goes to markets and that sort of thing. But I know there are a couple of other people growing it. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, there you go. So that's answered two questions. Good. And it's just about the end of the program. It is high time
0: that we finished up, in fact. Um, I have to say a big thank you to Liz and to Susie, who've been handling all the calls this morning. And, uh, of course, a big thank you to Stephen and Penny uh, once again for giving up their time and coming into 3CR. We will, of course, be back again next Sunday morning, 7.30. So, until then, bye
3: for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.